Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. And yes, I know, I know I heard you, you don't like this background, but this is not the permanent background. We have ordered some furniture for the podcast room that we're calling in our, our new home, um, which used to be the dining room, but who needs a formal dining room? Anyway, um, it hasn't come yet, so we don't really have any ability to film anywhere else. And so I'm back at my kitchen table, just in a different space. And I'm sorry about the blinds. It's either this or you're completely blinded by the light. Blinded by the light. Um, but anyway, we will hopefully get a ship date soon and then be in the other room. And then you can be all excited. Also, we have all our art stuff still to put up, you know, we're a work in progress, uh, and so thank you for your patience. Now, today we have 10 questions, and usually the last two are just randomly selected. However, unfortunately, this week we had so many with the same number of likes. I think it was like 31. So the last like four all have 31 likes. So unfortunately, there are no random questions this week, but do not fret. I will get to you next week. There will be some more selections. Um, anyways, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Oh, I got a lot of questions and just some uh, just overall questions about me, about why we moved to Texas. And the truth about it is that we have a lot of friends in Austin and we couldn't afford homes and that like with the size that we needed because we needed like three bedrooms. I know <gasps> um, in order to film or at least a studio or some space for a studio. We couldn't afford that in Los Angeles like at all. Even like an hour outside was really rough. And so we started looking two hours out and then, you know, it was just so hot because you're in the middle of the desert. And then even that was too expensive, like Palm Springs, Palm Desert, super expensive, couldn't afford that. And so, yeah, we'd looked into Phoenix and then we thought about maybe, you know, somewhere in Idaho and maybe we look in Washington where my family's from. You know, we looked all over considering options and even Colorado for a little hot minute. And then because we have a lot of friends out in this area, we decided Austin was for us. And so, and it's also a very affordable place comparative to Santa Monica, California and Los Angeles as a whole. And so, yeah, so that's why we decided. Some people were asking, so there you have your answer. Okay, enough about me. Um, we are just moving and still in, in the process. Luckily, all of our boxes are unpacked and done, but now we have to get like the furniture that we need for, for studio life. So yeah, that's it. Thanks for your patience. Let's get into your questions. Enough about my shenanigans. And question number one says, hey, Katie, you have talked several times from the perspective of kids uh, where well-meaning parents just weren't able to fill all of their children's emotional needs. Do you have any advice for the well-meaning parent that feels like they aren't meeting their child's needs? I thought this was a wonderful question. It by far got the most thumbs up. I think I had like 90 something. And the truth about this is, that we as parents, we as people are all going to have our own hangups, right? No parent is perfect. Parents who even try to be perfect tend to just be overly anxious and like helicopter parents. There's no way for us to do anything in life perfectly, okay? And so the best way to meet your child's needs when they're young is a lot of basic needs. So food, shelter, you know, care, stuff like that. And then coming when they cry. Now it's not there was a question and I'll, um, I think, I don't think it's actually in this, but they were saying that they're not even a parent, but they're a nanny. And when they hear a child cry, they try to run as fast as they can, but they can't always just run when the child cries. Don't worry so much about that. It's not that as soon as a child cries, we have to be there. It's more along the lines of 
when a child knows it can count on us, so they will cry. Because if we just let children cry it out, now I'm not saying that like, I know a lot of people do that, what they call like ferberizing to babies, like let them cry it out till they go to sleep. And I used to babysit this child who the mom, um, his name was Andrew. He's super cute. Now he's like a teenager. But uh, the mom said, you know, play this song on the bear. He had like a little bear. She's like, hit the paw. Um, you can come in and hit it again, but he'll cry for just a couple minutes and he'll go to sleep. Now that's just normal parenting. What I'm talking about is not like, let him cry a little knowing that they'll fall asleep in like five minutes, right? I'm talking about a child cries and no one comes to its aid like in the morning when it wakes up or in the afternoon if it falls and hits its head, no one picks it up and, and swoops and kisses and makes it better or says anything to them. There's no emotional support. And so I think potentially maybe what I inadvertently created was a lot of anxiety in parents out there that were like, am I meeting my children's emotional needs? Oh, what if I'm not? Most likely as long as you're aware and you check in with your child and you support them and encourage them, especially when they're little, just being there and are you okay? And I think we're going to be okay. You know, cause sometimes if we make it into something bigger, children will cry even more, you know, all of that. I think it's just that coming to their aid, making, and then as they get older and are more verbal, making more time to talk to them, you know, today was a busy day. How do you feel? You know, checking in creates emotional intelligence from a younger age. And is that's pretty much what, what I'm talking about and what most of us are looking for when we are children. Now, um, if you feel like you aren't meeting your child's needs, like maybe you feel too exhausted. Like I have a couple of friends who are single parents. Like one of my good friends, Allie has twins. They're adorable by the way, but she's doing it on her own. And she's constantly worried that she's just not doing it right. You know, she's not there enough for them. There's, there's two and she's only one, and uh, you know, all of that stress. I think if, if you feel that there's something happening where you're not able to, let's say a, your child does cry and you feel frustrated, right? Or you aren't able to come to their aid emotionally because you're burnt, then I think the, there's a huge component of what we need to address as humans, which is like the self-care stuff. Because I know, especially when our children are really, really young, I honestly feel like you must be a robot if at some point during that, what they call the fourth trimester, when you have like a newborn, if you don't feel completely exhausted and overwhelmed, like they're, you know, then maybe you're a robot. Um, because everybody I know, unless they have like night nurses and a whole bunch of help, get to a point in parenting at the very early on where you feel burnt out and you're not able to support your child. And so what I encourage to happen there is to either get more support, whether it's like other familial support, like my friend Allie has like her cousin and her her father and her brother and family, her best friends like Daphne, people come over and support her so she can take a break. And if you have a partner, if you're lucky enough to have a spouse or partner who's co-parenting with you, let them handle the child for one evening where you get to sleep in like another bedroom so that you get rest or do something, you know, maybe you get to take a shower uninterrupted, you know, doing those things so you can take care of yourself. Or this might be deeper, let's say because of our own trauma, some of the responses we see from our child trigger us, then that means that we need to get into our own therapy, maybe online, like through BetterHelp or Talkspace. I um, I usually link things down in the description for that. So if you're looking for some extra support that's easy, you don't have to leave your home. Those are some options. They're also more affordable. Um, taking care of your own shit so that it doesn't boil over into your parent role is going to be really helpful. And I know that that's very broad. And I know that you're probably thinking, well, Katie, in my you know particular situation, 
this XYZ is happening. Overall, if we're taking care of ourselves as humans and parents, as well as doing our best to just recognize how our child is and check in with them at whatever developmental level. Like I said, if they're like little toddler, it's more of like short conversations about like, oh, you you hurt yourself. Did that make you sad? Or I can tell you're kind of angry. Can we use our words instead of, you know, throwing a fit or something, whatever, you know, obviously depends on the child and how old they are. Or, you know, uh, co-parenting, switching off. Like there's just a lot of different things that we can do to make sure that we're there for our child. And again, no parent is perfect. No one parents perfectly. We just do our best with what we know. And as long as we're taking care of ourselves and doing our best to check in and take care of our child's basic needs, as well as, you know, checking in emotionally pretty frequently, let's say like three times a week. Also for children when they're little, their memories are not as long. Like they only remember like maybe that day if we're lucky or a few hours. So checking in every day with them. Maybe at the end of the night, you do like the pit and the peak. When I was a nanny, the like five and six-year-olds that I was babysitting slash nannying loved pit and peak of the day, meaning the worst part of your day and the best part of your day. And we talk about it at dinner. They love that. So maybe it's something like that that you start. And I think, I, I think those basic things are enough. I don't want any of us to get so caught up in making it, you know, quote unquote, perfect or doing this thing just the way that we, um, we, we assume you have to, um, we're going to be okay. We're very adaptive. Humans are completely resilient and able to work through tough times. But I think it's also important. This is the last thing I'll say before I get into the comment question on this. I think it's really important as parents, and this is something new that I've, I personally have come around to, which is I think telling a child about our own upsets and failings is just as important as us checking in on them and letting them know it's okay. Because as an adult, I've recognized that there's this period of time in your life when you think your parents are like infallible. They're like gods, like they know everything. They can fix it. I used to always think my dad can fix anything. I still kind of think my dad could have fixed anything. But there's a period where you think all these amazing things about them. And then you realize either if you had like an a horrible parent or abusive parent or something you more quickly realize. But for some of us, it's just like, as we get older, we realize, hey, our parents like don't know what they're doing or like, why do they, you know, we like, we become more adult and we're able to see them for what they really are, which is human. And so I honestly believe that our relationship with our children can be healthier if they know that we are fallible too. Like we tell them, for instance, and I've talked about this in other videos as, as well, but let's say we yelled at our child because we were upset and we were frustrated about a, something that had happened. It's completely healthy and okay to come to them later. Let's say they're in their room. They're probably mad at us. And we can say, let's say our child's name is like Lily. And we're like, you know, Lily, uh, I just wanted to come in here and I wanted to apologize because I know I shouted at you. And the reason that I shouted was really because I'd had a really bad day and I was feeling really tired and frustrated. And instead of talking to you about it, I took it out on you. And I'm sorry. Parents don't do that enough. And I think that those conversations are some of the most vital, uh, not only for the development of the relationship with our children, but also there it allows for their emotional intelligence to grow more quickly and more healthfully at a much younger age where they understand oh yeah, and then we, they can probably draw correlations because children are super, super smart that, oh, it's like when I, you know, 
push that girl at school because I was mad that I didn't get to, I don't know, read from the book like I wanted to in class. You know, kids can get upset for all sorts of reasons. Or because mom ran late picking me up and I was upset, so I shouted at my friend or whatever, right? Then they can draw those correlations, hopefully more quickly and easily, and it'll make them a better person. So I think that those are just some of the things that we can do. That's some of my advice. Obviously, I'm not a parent and I'm not pretending to know everything, but I do know about kids' emotional needs and emotional intelligence and development, and hopefully that helps us all. Now, there was a comment on this that said, I'm curious about how we can repair the damage we've already done. I never intentionally hurt my children, but now that I'm doing my own trauma therapy, I see things so differently. Inside, I'm crushed at how often I dissociated and missed out by not being present. Is there anything I can do to show them that I'm really trying? I'm finally working on myself and seeing a therapist two times a week. Again, I think this, and first of all, you're not alone. A lot of parents, a lot of humans, right? We're all just works in progress. And there's going to be these different time periods in our life where we realize like, man, I thought I was doing my best, but shit, this was not good, right? And I'm sure everybody goes through that. If you can have real conversations with them, I think that that is best. If you can say, and I don't know, it's up to, it depends on the developmental age, but I think that it is fair to tell your children, and I would encourage all of us to tell our children, if we're in therapy, to tell them that we are and why. Now, we don't have to get into details. Obviously, you're talking about like trauma therapy, but you could say something to the effect of, you know, uh, let's say it's me. So it'd be like, mommy, you know, again, depending on how old they are, but you know, mommy was hurt when she was about your age. And so now I'm going to talk to a therapist so I can try to make sense of it so that I don't feel so bad all the time. Right. And depending on when certain things happened with your children that you feel like you maybe weren't around or, um, you know, unintentionally were unavailable, right it's okay to check in with them now and make mention of that. Now, again, depending on the age of the child, they may not have memory of it, but that doesn't mean that they don't have the experience somewhere in their cellular system. And I know that that sounds really ridiculous, but we know body memories are a real thing. We know that that when something happens to us, even if we don't actually have a full memory because maybe we we're too young, that it's that's why I love the book, The Body Keeps the Score. It's a perfect analogy for this because our body keeps the score. So if something happened... It's okay to bring it up now. Be open to dialogue with them. Again, kind of going back to what I said to the first part of this question, I think having those conversations where you're like, hey, I messed up. Here's why I'm working on it. So know that if there's something I've said that was hurtful, you can tell me, you know? And again, you can bring up these old scenarios that you remember and just ask them about it. Give them an opportunity to process it because even though you're not their therapist, just giving them a chance to put it into a narrative form and talk it out might be enough. And then truly the best way for them to heal is for you to do better going forward. Again, none of us are perfect. I have a a sneaking suspicion that you're being a little bit hard on yourself because again, trauma is always filled with shame and we think that we're just broken and something's wrong with us. You're doing the best you can, but opening up our interactions for real like communication and emotional conversation with our children will allow for truly both of us to heal. And I just want to throw this out there. You do not need to beat yourself up about past things you did over and over again once you've brought it up with them, tried to talk it out, and you know that you're trying to do better, okay? I give you full permission to let yourself off the hook, okay? Because the forgiveness, you know, it's not just them forgiving you, it's you forgiving yourself. Okay, let's move on to question two. And that was a wonderful question. I'm happy to do like a full video about that. You guys let me know if you, if you want to see that. 
Now, question number two says, hi, Katie, I have recently been learning a lot more about autism spectrum disorder and realize that I might be autistic. I struggle with changes in routine, noise, um, connecting with others, eye contact, anxiety, panic attacks, and the list goes on and on and on. Looking back at my childhood, I definitely had some of these traits, but I lived in a, I lived a generally happy life before moving into college and don't feel like I quote unquote struggled enough to validate an autism diagnosis. Wow. So judgmental of yourself already. So is everything I'm feeling just anxiety? Also, how can I talk to my therapist about autism? I keep wanting her to bring it up, but she hasn't, which just perpetuates the feeling that I'm making all of this up. Any help is appreciated and thank you for all that you do. Of course, of course. Okay, wonderful, wonderful question. And honestly, I feel like a lot of us can apply whatever diagnosis we're curious about into this and use this for our own potential worry about it, okay? Now, it could, first of all, there's a lot of judgment, even in the language. Is everything I'm feeling just anxiety as if that's not enough? I'm telling you, it's enough. But because we think it might be autism, you're going to have to bring it up with your therapist because you are the expert in your experience. And some of the things that you maybe t- are talking about with me, like saying, you know, you struggle with changes in routine, connecting with others, eye contact, all these like red flags that as, as a clinician, I would be like, oh, maybe it is autism. Hmm, maybe we should get them assessed and have them, t- you know, do some testing to see what we find. They may not have that information because they haven't asked the specific question about it because they might be thinking it's anxiety right now. You're going to have to tell them. And the best way to do that is maybe for you, because it it sounds like it's kind of hard to bring up, is like writing it down and reading it, asking if you can email or text them in between session because there's something you've been struggling to get off your chest. Most therapists will allow that as long as it's not all the time and you don't expect a response. Um, That's, I mean, and you could even practice saying it out loud if you really want to try to, to ask and say it. Um, You can practice that ahead of time so that you're prepared and you can do it when you go into your next session. But I want to dig in here for a minute about the, the thing, the feeling that you haven't struggled enough to validate an autism diagnosis. Now I'm here to tell you that every diagnosis affects people differently and someone's quote unquote lesser amount of struggle doesn't make the diagnosis less real. Also, we all have different levels of resilience, which is uh, a term meaning our ability to bounce back or weather life's storms and get through it, right? It's like our ability, it's our, uh, I'm trying to think of another word, but it's like how, how well can we get through something and not be completely upset and distraught? And so you might have a higher level of resilience, whereas, you know, Uh, Sally over there might not, and it could be more difficult. And she could feel like she has really struggled and definitely has an autism diagnosis. You know, I'm just telling you that that you don't have to really struggle to warrant having a proper diagnosis and proper treatment. And this goes for all diagnoses, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, um, borderline personality disorder, anything, panic attacks, uh, dissociation. If we are having a hard time, if we do not feel good, if life has been a little bit difficult for us because of these things that, you know, you could have a generally happy life, but you could have been held back in certain ways because of the way our your brain works, that warrants proper diagnosis and proper treatment. Now, what treatment you might need versus what somebody else needs is going to be different because you're different people. 
But I would just encourage you to recognize how judgmental your conversation with yourself is about this. And I, I want you to challenge that a little bit. Maybe turn the conversation into a more balanced one where it's like, not that you don't, uh, instead of saying, I haven't struggled enough, maybe it's just anxiety. A, a bridge statement or a more balanced statement would be something like, you know, from what I've heard about autism, it sounds like it's it's a much more severe, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It more severely disrupts my life. And I don't feel like my life was necessarily that disrupted, but I do feel like some things happened, right? That's a balanced thought. It said, from what I know, sounds like it looks like this. Mine looks like this, but it, it sounds similar. That's balanced. That's not as judgmental. Try that. Try to ch- shift the way you talk to yourself about it. And writing it down, practicing it so you can bring it up in session. Because the real way, if we're really seeking a diagnosis, because some for a lot of us, a diagnosis is really important. Also a diagnosis when it comes to ASD or autism spectrum disorder, it can mean that with our school and work, we can get some, you know, extra support, meaning maybe we are able to have our own office because outside noise is too distracting or too upsetting to our system. Like uh, I also have had a lot of patients over the years, um, you know, I've written tons of letters to get them more time on tests if they have ADHD or or if they, you know, struggle with too much noise, getting them being able to take a test in their own room. Like there's all sorts of accommodations that work and school will make for us once we have a diagnosis. So I understand why it may behoove you to get that. And also it can be really validating, right? But when when it comes to proper, properly getting diagnosed with autism or autism spectrum disorder, we're going to have to do some testing and assessment. And so I'd assume that your therapist will refer you out unless they do the testing themselves. Some people do. I personally am not uh, certified to do that. I have no knowledge of what proper testing would look like, but I know I have a, I have someone I refer to who does it. So that could be really helpful. And yeah, I think that's it. Let me know if you have follow-ups, but hopefully that is helpful. Okay, let's get a little sip of some coffee and move on to question number three. Okay, question three is, hey, Katie, I may be a little older than most of your listening audience. We actually have a crazy range of ages of people who listen and watch. So my husband has pushed me into going to a couple of swingers parties. I dread them. I cry about them. Yet I go. He loves them. He has so much fun. I stand to the side and am constantly told to loosen up. I'm not comfortable with my body and to be naked in front of all of these people. I finally participate with my eyes closed. Sometimes it's like I'm watching and not in the moment. You're dissociating. And when it's over, I spend the next few weeks cutting and with suicidal thoughts. Do you know how hard it is to watch your husband with another woman? I am, I don't know. And honestly, I could not participate and I would, I would lose my mind. So I understand. Um, I am bipolar. I have PTSD and a history of bulimia. I'm in therapy and I've talked to my therapist about it and we do the best we can with it. How can I get my husband to hear me? The ladies at the party say I should be happy because this is making him happy. What? That's not how that works. Who cares whether I'm happy? Yeah, right? Right? Fuck that. Maybe I should just be asking you how I can be more supportive to him. What? You're already waiting. And get over my insecurities, but I want out. It's not about insecurities. 
there's a couple of things. So first of all, and someone left a comment to this effect, and I really, I think it's important to mention, there is a way to have a healthy, happy, a polyamorous relationship, meaning that it's not uh, monogamous between two people, that you can have, you know, uh, an open relationship is another term people use. But you can have like a lot of different people in your life that you, you could be a swinger and want to have sex or sexual relationships with a lot of different people. And there's a healthy, happy, consensual way to do that within a relationship. But this is not it. This is not the way to to have a healthy polyamorous relationship. This is, your husband is, I don't know if he's coercing you. I don't know what it would be like, because I don't really see in this question whether or not you've told him no, because I, I would tell him no. I'm not comfortable because what's essentially happening to you is from what it sounds like to me is that you're getting overwhelmed and you're dissociating because you're super uncomfortable and it's potentially traumatizing too. It sounds, I'm, I'm going to be honest, from a personal perspective, this sounds traumatizing. Like if this was the situation that I was in and Sean wanted to do these, it would be a deal breaker. I would have to tell him that I cannot. It's not something I'm comfortable with. That's not that's not how I am. That's just not what I'm what I want in my relationships. Again, there are people who have healthy, happy, polyamorous relationships and there are usually some rules around what's okay and what's not okay, what they allow in their relationship, what they don't, and they're both it, it's consensual. They're both into it, they understand it and they want that. Now, it sounds to me a little bit like your husband wants to cheat on you but is trying to like manipulate the situation by doing it this way and wanting to be yeah it's, it just sounds very it sounds very manipulative and it sounds very abusive now your your uh physiological response to this right if we combined first of all just the discomfort then the dissociation then the the waves of emotion that you have to deal with in the aftermath of this where you feel suicidal you you know you engage in self-injury and just feel overwhelmed and you're already in therapy dealing with stuff and have ptsd and bipolar disorder and bulimia you're already dealing with plenty so all we can do because the question is how can first question how can i get my husband to hear me now, the first thing is he you can't make him hear you because if he doesn't want to, he's not going to. We can't make people make better choices for our relationships, but we can clean our side of the street. So what I would really encourage you to do, either in therapy, have him come to a therapy session with you or practice, again, writing down what you want to say, practice how you want to say it, practice saying it out loud with your therapist, do some like role play with it until you're comfortable and then say it at home. But all you have to tell him is, I don't want to go to those parties anymore. I dissociate. You know, it's so overwhelming to my system that it's like traumatizing. I'm not comfortable. And at this point, I don't I don't want to go back. I don't see that being a part of my life anymore. Okay. It's up to him at that point to choose you, right? To To clean his side of the street. Then he has to communicate why it's so important. Now, I'm not going to lie, just from a knee-jerk reaction of mine, if he was to fight you on this and to be like, how dare you? That's so selfish. I'd be out. 
But again, that's not therapist Katie. That's friend Katie. I'd be like, hey, if he can't at least hear you and meet you halfway and say, okay, let's, can we just, because a compromise would be, we'll just take the next six months off or four months off or whatever, like a chunk of time. I don't know how often you're going, but he could come to, okay, let's just take a break until you start to feel better. And then can we reassess? That's compromise. And I would encourage you, if you feel okay doing that, to say okay to that for now, because we need to get you to a place where you can talk to him about this and feel heard. And that would, that would be a more loving, because, you know, let's play devil's advocate. Maybe he thinks that you like them. It sounds like he probably already knows because he pushed you, but maybe you haven't fought back or told him enough of how dis, like difficult it is for you. So if you do, maybe he's like, oh, honey, I didn't know. I thought you enjoyed this too. Okay, let's just take a break. Let's take a break for a while, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's, that's a loving thing to do. That's what I would expect of him, okay? And I don't think that's expecting too much. Then I really have to push back because the ladies at the party, first of all, who asked them? And I don't fucking care, but you should be happy because it's making him happy. That's not how this works. It, you should be happy if it's making him happy if he's like going off to to golf or he's has a boys weekend where they I don't know I'm trying to think of what Sean even did they go snowboarding or mountain biking it's something he loves and you're excited about it this is a a relationship choice and this is a a 50 50 you both have to be in it you both have to decide to do this now you don't like seeing him with something someone else and you're not comfortable and it's just not something you want to be a part of. So whether or not that makes him happy has nothing to do with anything. That's not even an important component because the real component is, is it happy and healthy for your relationship? And the answer is no. And who cares whether I'm happy is the question mark. And that, the question right after that, and I agree, and I care. I care if you're happy and those women are just being stupid and I wouldn't. I w- Talking to other swingers who are excited and enjoy engaging in that kind of behavior and enjoy a happy, healthy, polyamorous relationship, those are not the people that you want to talk to because they don't understand your reluctance or your difficulty in that type of situation, right? They're not going to be able to see things from your perspective because they're not you. And so, no, you shouldn't be asking how you can be more supportive of him. You're already being super supportive. And I don't believe this is just your insecurities. I think the, this is more than that. So be honest with yourself now. I, my homework, I guess, for you is to figure out how you want to communicate to him that you need to take a break from it. Let's start there. My, I am like in my gut, maybe I've been watching too much NCIS. Gibbs always talks about his gut. But in my gut, I think you don't ever want to go back and it's never something that you would have ever wanted to do. But let's just start with asking for a break from it for both of you, Okay see how that goes. And let's work that out. Practice saying it with your therapist, maybe bring him into therapy so you can say it, whatever you're comfortable with. Let's try to do that. And then the second thing is I want you just to be, be uh, curious, not judgmental about what's happening and how comfortable you feel or not. And in a perfect world where you didn't have to consider someone else's feelings, because yes, I know you're in a relationship and you have to consider his feelings, but when it comes to a healthy, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but when you have an open relationship or are consensually and happily polyamorous, polyamorous, there, there are like rules usually. And even if you weren't with that specific person, you would want that in your next relationship as well. And so I'm very curious if 
you weren't with your husband, if it was someone else, um, would you want them to want to engage in that too? Like, would you feel like something was missing from your relationship if you didn't have these parties and events and the ability to be with other men? Is that something that you enjoy as well? My gut and just based on the information you gave me is like, no, you wish it wouldn't. But let's just be curious, not judgmental. You can figure out what what works for you because you're in this relationship too. And I'm going to tell you that if that if he won't even consider taking a break from this for you, then it's up to you to decide if you're willing to continue doing these parties and having this be part of your relationship or if maybe, you know, this is a deal breaker in your relationship and maybe, you you know, being with him is, is too high a price to pay. But that's a, a decision that you have to make on your own. Again, you, you know, you have to talk to your husband. You have to figure out what's best for you, best for him, best for your relationship. I even encourage you to kind of think of those three buckets, like what's best for you, what's best for him, what's best for your relationship. I was even talking, this is the last little thing that I'll say. In the workshop that I um, am offering, the relationship workshop, which is not too late to join. So if you're interested, it a lot of it's like a relationship with yourself, but we're getting into dealing with conflict and how to healthfully manage conflict and have conversations that are difficult. And the one thing that I want us all to remember is that when we're fighting with someone that we love, it helps to think of you and them against the problem, not against each other. And so when it comes to the situation, it might be helpful for you when you're trying to navigate and negotiate with him to think of it as you and him against the problem, which is, you know, the polyamory and your reluctance to do it rather than you versus him. And see if that reframe just kind of changes the way that you engage in that conversation. Sometimes it can make us just slightly less emotional. And let's just see if that is helpful for you. Okay. Keep us posted. And I'm sorry that I want to give you a hug because, man, that's terrible. I could not. I just could not. I wouldn't, couldn't do it either. I would want out. Okay. Question number four. It says, hi, Katie. If a therapist tells you that you're showing signs of trauma, does that automatically mean that you have a trauma-related disorder like PTSD? Or does it just mean that you're traumatized by what happened? My therapist told me that I'm showing signs of trauma, but I'm not sure if if she what I'm not sure if she means I'm suffering from a disorder or not. Thanks for everything you do. Of course. So you can have some symptoms of a disorder and not meet the full criteria for a diagnosis. Now, yes, I know the DSM, which is our diagnostic manual that we use to break down the different symptoms of each disorder, as well as things like the the ICD-10. And I forget what the ICD stands for, but it's just another diagnostic manual or tool for uh, essentially in the States, it's for insurance and uh, purposes of like treatment and following certain protocol in hospital. I mean, it runs deep in our healthcare system, but getting a diagnosis means that you meet a certain amount of criteria within the diagnostic list, right? So there's like these certain symptoms and signs that you have to have in order to receive like a PTSD or even generalized anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder. They all have these criteria that have to be met in order to get a proper diagnosis, okay? So when your therapist says you're showing signs of trauma, what that means is that some of those criterium are being hit. So some of the things you have, like uh, let's say maybe you have a little bit of hypervigilance. So, you know, you're you're jumpy, you're assessing your environment all the time for things, for threat, but you don't have anything else. And maybe you dissociate every so often, right? We can have a couple of these 
symptoms of trauma. Something's happened. You've been traumatized. But not everyone who's traumatized has PTSD. It it just depends. Again, what I was talking about, I think it was in question one, is like our different amounts of resilience. So our ability to withstand life's upsets and like move forward, you might have a high resilience. So even though you've been, maybe you've had multiple traumas, you might show some signs of it, but not have full-fledged PTSD because you're able to, you have some tools and some skills and you're able to manage a little bit so that it doesn't completely wipe you out, right? And you don't have all the symptoms. So that's really probably what your therapist means. I mean, I'm 99.9% sure that's what she means or he means. Um, Yeah, because we can show signs. You can show signs of depression. You can show signs of an eating disorder without actually being able to be diagnosed with it. Now, does that mean that it's not as severe or doesn't mean that you deserve as much care? No, we all are deserving of as much care as we need. And we all deserve to have any signs and symptoms that are bothersome to us be taken care of and be better managed to have tools and resources to help us deal with them. So not having the diagnosis does not mean that you have a quote unquote lesser than trauma or that things aren't bad enough for you to get help. We all are deserving of help. But we don't all meet criteria for a random diagnosis in the DSM, which isn't the end-all be-all, and they change it all the time, and they refuse to do research on things that, you know, I could, I have, unfortunately, my editor didn't like this, so they took it out of my book, my book that's coming out this September called Traumatized, but I had a whole, probably page, so not a ton, maybe like three paragraphs about what, what issues I had with the DSM and the fact that it's updated so infrequently and they don't do enough exploratory research and they don't change criteria of old uh, diagnoses very often you know there's i have just so many issues not to mention the fact that there's like uh funding where the funding comes from you could be limiting and they have to you know it's like there's so many ways that it can go wrong and so many reasons why i don't really appreciate the apa and i'm not to say that they're like Again, it's not all or nothing. This isn't black and white. This is just like, there's some issues that they haven't addressed. And there are some issues I have with the DSM, um, particularly with regard to self-injury and non-suicidal self-injury and also eating disorders and how those are diagnosed. There's just so many things and so many frustrating things, issues that I have with the DSM. So don't feel like the diagnosis is, is a must-have. It doesn't actually mean anything different other than you have some of these other symptoms too. Does that make sense? I hope that that makes sense. I don't want to get on the soapbox for too long on that. Um, So yeah, but also feel free and please do actually, I encourage you to ask your therapist about it. Talk to them. I know that when I work with my patients and I think that they have something or some symptoms of something, I'll mention it. And then if they were to say like, so do you, are you diagnosing with me? Are you diagnosing me? Sorry, wow, that was a mouthful with PTSD. And I would say, oh no, I don't think that all the criteria is met. But here are the ones that I do think are. And then I always am open to having a conversation with my patients. I'll even bring in the DSM and walk them through how it works and what what the symptoms are. And I've even copied it for patients because they don't believe they have the right diagnosis from their psychiatrist. And I think they do. Or, you know, it's we can discuss it. It's not a, I'm the doctor, or I'm the therapist, because I'm not a doctor, by the way, but I'm the therapist and I believe you have this. And it's not, you can't tell me otherwise, like, that's not how this works. I tell you what I think. I hear from you because it's with my expertise and your experience, right, that we get the best outcome. So 
please bring up your therapist and ask questions because that's completely fine. Okay, let's move on. Question number five. And it says, what are some lessons you've learned about the world or about people that you don't think you would have known if you hadn't been a therapist? Hmm. That's a great question. Examples that you don't necessarily have to go off of are things like systemic uh, problems or solutions to improve systemic issues that you wish were implemented. Recurring themes you've noticed amongst clients that people often don't talk to one another about or don't talk about in certain relationships, such as lesser known or common fears or taboo subjects that are perfectly normal, etc. There's a lot that I've learned. Um, the first is that, and I don't know if everybody else would know this, but because you might, but something that I've learned through working with different people with all types of parent situations like because I see adults you guys if you guys don't know in my private practice um, that I had back in Santa Monica I only saw adults I had over the years maybe seen like four teenagers and that was just because you know for some reason either it was like I'm an eating disorder specialist and they had an eating disorder and it's really hard to find someone so I would you know I would do it or just something about their situation spoke to me and I thought that it was you know it's someone I wanted to see so I realize that children have issues regardless of parenting. Now, yes, parenting plays a huge role, but I think so often, like back to that first question about, you know, I think I'm not there for my kids and stuff like that. There is a huge, obviously it's nature and nurture, but I don't think I realize just how powerful nature is, meaning that I have... um you know, I've had plenty of patients over the years whose parents are are involved and active and supportive and loving and like all the things that that we as, you know, mental health clinicians know supports healthy children, healthy people, and they can still have really tough times. Like, you know, and, and that's not to say that like, just because our parents do all the things good on paper, I'm talking emotional support, also offering them, you know, like independence and chances to just be like all in all, I've had patients where we have a really tough time finding like a root of their issue other than a genetic predisposition for like anxiety disorders. Like I had a patient back in the day who'd have like these panic attacks all the time at school and it was overwhelming to her. And we dug and dug and dug into family. We even had family sessions with everybody in and, um, come to find out really that it was her mom had anxiety, her grandma had anxiety, her aunt had anxiety, like everybody had anxiety and nobody talked about it. So we didn't know until we had those sessions. But other than that, there was no like thing that was happening. You know what I mean? There was, uh, because then to, to control her panic to attacks and she'd self injure. It was just a cycle. And, and for a while I thought maybe it was abuse, but there was nothing, you know? And so I think a lot of times we put a lot of pressure on parents and rightfully so being a parent is a, is a very big and beautiful responsibility. Um, but sometimes it's it's just, it's the way that we are wired. And I don't think I would have realized that in the way that I did without being a therapist. Um, also, and this actually came about writing my first book, Are You Okay? I, I don't even know if we included it because sometimes things get edited out, you guys. And I know that kind of is the stinker, but you know, it makes it flow better. And I tr- have to trust my editor on that. But he had me as because one of the things that I had done as like a homework assignment or as something I wanted people to do in the book was to write down some of the feelings that they experienced each and every day. 
And so I had, uh, you know, that was part of the thing that I was asking the book. I was like, and take some time and notice, you know, three to five feelings that you had today and do that for the week and see how, how you do kind of thing. Anyway, when, um, when I asked <laughs> my friends and family to jot down three to five feelings they had, no one could, you guys, no one. Although it was funny, my mom's boyfriend, Larry was like, boom, he's like, yep. He gave it to me right away. Like it took him like two minutes. Everybody else, like my close friends, Sean, my mom, everybody was like, huh? And I think I knew it, but I don't think, I don't think anybody else in the world other than therapists necessarily spends enough time in this space to recognize just how uncomfortable slash unaware we are emotionally. I think that was a shocker to me but also like, duh, right? I mean, I know it, but it didn't, it like slapped me in the face. And so I think the overall thing that I've learned is that people nowadays, for some reason, are so goddamn uncomfortable with their emotions and what's going on in their head that they, they live, most of us live life, not, not even aware of what we're feeling and experiencing, which I truly believe that if we all tapped in just a little bit, to recognize what's going on, everybody would feel better. It's not like the world would heal itself like, oh, kumbaya. But I think that we would have a lot less random acts of aggression and frustration and less fighting, less arguing, things like that. And so, yeah, that's a recurring theme. Everybody hates their feelings and wants to ignore them. And I'm sure if I gave more thought to this, I'd have more answers. But um also, side note, and I think a lot of people know this too, but this is just something that um, that I do want to address also, is that almost everybody is uncomfortable talking about sex and money. And those are the two biggest reasons that people get divorced. So if you're out there and you're in some kind of relationship that's committed, I encourage you to be open about talking about your money and your spending habits and sex, because those are really important. Those are huge parts of a relationship and things that could break you up. The third, obviously, if you're wondering, is parenting styles um, and differing opinions on parenting. So make sure before you decide to have children, you talk about that too. Because if one of you is really strict and the other is like laissez-faire, it's going to cause some issues. Um, okay. I think that's enough for now. But that's a really good question. It's something fun to like think about because there's also, oh, one last thing. Sorry. Then I'll move on. I also believe that almost everybody, I would guess like 90% of the world has been traumatized in one way or another. Hence why I wanted to have my book traumatized um, coming out this September, why I wanted to be created at all, because I think trauma is way more common than we ever let on. Because for some reason, we've always assumed that trauma is this huge life altering event. And it can be a bunch of smaller things that build up and knock us down um, and give us symptoms of trauma or PTSD. Okay, let's move on to question number six. It says, hi, Katie, I hope you're well. I would love to hear any advice and thoughts you have about my therapist crossing boundaries. I've been seeing the same therapist for about three years now. And while I have made so much progress with my generalized anxiety disorder, yay, I have always struggled with boundaries. I know I can't blame all of this on my therapist, but there are a few things that she has done that I think have crossed the line. For example, she sent me a package with a wallet card book about anxiety before I left for college. 
I absolutely love the gift, but I think it just feeds into my attachment issues. That's interesting. I don't think of that as like crossing the line. Most recently, she suggested that we meet for dinner together to eat somewhere outdoors because she's uncomfortable with returning to her office during COVID. That's fair. A lot of therapists have been doing stuff like this. She's an older woman and with diabetes. I don't know what to do. I would love to have dinner with her, but I think this unnecessarily crosses a boundary. Thank you so much for all that you do. You're amazing. Oh, and sorry, I realized I left out an important detail. She is still having video sessions, but offered to do this for me before I leave for college this summer. Thank you. Okay, here's a couple of things. With the COVID situation, uh, mental health care professionals in particularly have been given a very difficult task of trying to figure out how to support their patients while also supporting their own health. Now, I... If you guys don't know, before I left Santa Monica, I had this group that I'm a part of and still I'm on the email chain and we communicate in other ways, but we haven't met in over a year. So we did uh, did Zoom and then we did email conversations. But it was the reason we would get together every month was to discuss difficult clients or issues to get other insight from each other and also to and honestly end up discussing COVID and HIPAA and how to best serve our patients, Okay. So COVID, because it is, unfortunately, what what I do is I sit in a room for an hour and talk with someone, right? And it's a small room because you want it to feel cozy. You don't want it to feel like vast and overwhelming. And so a lot of my friends and colleagues have been meeting patients out in parks or at a cafe and sitting off to the side. Obviously, their patients have to be willing to do it, but... If you want to meet in person and not just over video, those are the options for a lot of us because we're not comfortable. I, first of all, I'm I'm not comfortable asking my patients whether or not they're vaccinated because that's their health information. That's up to them. They can share it with me if they want, or they can ask me, but it's a very strange thing to ask someone about their health, you know, like that when you're not, I'm not a doctor. I'm not, you know, it's not like it's a necessary question, um, and I feel like some ways it's kind of violating for some people. And some of my patients have a, are not comfortable and, you know, whatever, to each, to each their own. But those are your options, right? You you decide, okay, we're all vaccinated and that makes me feel more safe. Or we're just going to meet up, meet outside if everybody's okay with that and they feel safe confidentially doing that. Or we're going to continue doing video sessions. You know, th- those are the options. Now, because you're leaving for college, I have a feeling that's why she just wanted to see you one last time. A lot of times therapist will offer that. It's not, it depends on how she asked because it'd be something that I would probably offer as well. Like, hey, would you want to go get a cup of coffee and say goodbye before you go to college? I have met up, I I mean, also I'm an eating disorder specialist, so I've gone out to eat with many of my patients as kind of a therapeutic thing, but I would do that too. And I don't think that's crossing a boundary because you don't get to see them in session. They're not comfortable doing it that way. Otherwise, it would have just been completely normal. And so things have because of COVID, things have been a little different, okay? So I just want to throw that out there. And then sending you a package with things like, you know, a wallet card um, and book about anxiety is is kind of like a farewell. A lot of times it can be like a not a transitional object type thing, but kind of a, like, a, you know, um, just supportive. We work together. I would, you know, I've given patients of mine cards and stuff in the past or a workbook, things like that, journals, um, nothing huge, but something for them to like take with them when either they, it's actually when they've either moved for work or gone, go to, gone away to college, things like that. Again, I don't see a ton of teens, so it's only happened twice, 
But those are just some of the reasons. Now, my my main encouragement for you would be to talk to your therapist about it, to talk about your attachment issues and how some of this has kind of like triggered that. And, you know, it's it's kind of bothersome to you because I don't believe she's doing it out of any malicious intent or even crossing a boundary necessarily. But it sounds like it's a boundary for you. Do you see what I mean? Like for her, I don't think she sees it as an unethical or boundary crossing behavior because she's like, I'm not seeing you in my office and I still want you to have some resources and I want to make sure you feel supported as you go off to college, but she's not comfortable meeting in her office, which I understand. So I think because of COVID and what has happened, that's why these things have occurred. Otherwise, it probably would not. But that doesn't mean that you can't express your feeling that your own boundary was crossed and how that affects you. Um, So that's what I would encourage you to bring up with your therapist to say something to the effect of like, you know, um, I feel uneasy about this and I'm not really sure, maybe you're not really sure why I really want to explore like why this was so upsetting. I'm I know it was done with the best of intentions, but I found it very, you know, uncomfortable. And I, I don't know if it's just because of COVID or have you done stuff like this before? Like those are all fair questions to ask. And I'm sure she has some great answers. It doesn't sound, I don't want to jump to the conclusion that your therapist is like overstepping boundaries in a normal world where we don't have a pandemic running loose. I don't believe these things would have happened, but that's a good question to ask her because that wouldn't have happened in my situation. I would never have done that. But with COVID, things have been a little weird. I have sent cards and I have sent workbooks and I've made copies of things and put them in the mail for patients, which I never did before because I would just hand it to them in my office, walk out, make a copy, bring it back in, right? Think We're just trying to make things work. Um, also, before I moved, I met up with a couple of my patients out at the park because it was safer. Um, yeah, so those are just some of the things. Um, I don't really think, my, my gut is, I don't think that this is normal. I think it is due to COVID. And yes, she's obviously, she's still offering video sessions, but Sometimes, you know, we're leaving, you're kind of graduating from therapy, you're moving away possibly. And so it's kind of just a way to to end and support you through that. And I think that that's wonderful from her perspective. However, it's really important that you communicate that it is not comfortable from yours, okay? So those are my thoughts. I hope that's helpful. Um, it's always important if something makes us uncomfortable in therapy to bring it up to talk to our therapist because chances are, let's, you know, we're going to hope for the best, right? Chances are they did not intend it for it to be that way. And we just need to give them opportunity maybe to explain and also validate the fact, like if this was, if, if I was your therapist and I had done this and you brought this to my attention, I would say, I want to apologize. I did not mean to make you uncomfortable. I understand we will not do the dinner. Totally understandable. And I, I, you know, I will not send packages again. The reason that I did it was, so you know, my intention was, you know, to support you because you're leaving. I wanted you to know and have resources. And it's just something that I would normally do in my office. But since we're not meeting, I tried to do it this way. Excuse me. Again, you know, I'm so sorry that this was upsetting, right? That's what I would say. So I would hope that she would say that too. Let's move on to question number seven. says, hi, Katie. What experiences with your clients have had the biggest impact on you? Hmm. I know because of HIPAA, you'd have to be vague, but I'd love to hear some stories. Okay. And then there's, it says, so comment, 
As a follow-up, since therapists get to hear about the deepest, darkest secrets from so many people and the roughest of rough challenges people face as well as follow clients through their healing journey, and yet they almost never will cry in session, I'm wondering which types of therapy sessions have made you or other therapists cry, including examples of happy crying or sad crying after the session because of their impact. If anything, what helpful lessons did you learn from the experience or from hearing about the experiences of your colleagues? Okay, so many good questions and I have tons of stories, but again, there's not that much that I can share. Um, Here's a couple of things. Uh, There's so many, I mean, okay. So one, one example, uh, a client, it's just funny because they just stand out. So I've, at my time at the eating disorder treatment center, I had quite a few patients who, whose lives were like drastically changed. Um, there was one patient I had who had struggled. This was like her 14th stay in an eating disorder treatment center. And luckily for her, her parents were really, really wealthy. And so they could pay for her to go to all these treatment centers, but that was kind of part of the problem. Anyway, she stayed with us for like three or four months, I want to say, and come to find out well, the cause that we found the cause of her eating disorder, which was that she was gay and didn't feel comfortable telling people she was gay. But in the time, I don't know, it was like, it was just magical watching the transformation. And I think it was because of some of the stuff that, and this is going to sound weird and I obviously can't get into too specific, but some of the things that we allowed her to do that at other treatment centers, they were like, absolutely not, which just perpetuated this like inner child revolt like her inner child was very stubborn and felt very forced into a certain life that they, that she didn't want. Um, and yeah, watching the transformation, I think that that's overall, like I remember, I still remember her outing to go on her first date with another woman. Oh, oh, it just like, it made me cry. I went in the office and cried. I was so happy. Those were happy tears. I was just so happy for her to, yeah, to just be free to be her. Oh, so awesome. Um, So there was that. Then I had a patient in the eating disorder treatment center again, who wanted to be an actress forever. And her eating disorder held her back. um, And she had really, just really struggled. And I think this was like her fourth or fifth stint again in treatment. And she stayed with us for, I want to say for six months or some, it seemed like a, a, a longer period than most of our patients. And she also had like co-occurring addiction problems. Anyway, it was about four or five months after discharge. So she'd been with us. She'd done well. She'd gone in the step-down program. She'd gone out to the state at our house for a little while. We had like a, you know, a IOP or PHP program where they could live in a home, a supportive therapeutic home and did that step down. We'd referred her out. She had her outpatient therapist still. Um, Anyway, we got an email to like our general work email and was forwarded out from, you know, our office manager that she was in this big play in LA and we got to go see her and it was so, we all cried. It was so good. Just really, just a feel good. Okay. So those are some of the feel goods. Now, one of my best friends, um, Abba is a, she used to work at a uh, I don't even know what you, I think it was just like, I don't know if it was actually, it was for, with domestic violence, but I don't know, I don't think she worked at the home because it was like a secret place, right? Like you, those things are like off the grid and nobody goes to them, but they pick all the women and children up in a van and take them over for their therapy and stuff. I think that's how it worked. Anyway, she worked at a domestic violence treatment center and 
she had a, a patient, uh, quite a few patients because of the cycle of violence, go back into those relationships. And she would sit in her office afterward and cry. And sometimes she would call me and we would just cry because it was so depressing and sad and, you know, no blame on the person. It was just, sometimes things are overwhelming. Um, and then I've heard a lot of trauma stories, even talking about that made me almost want to cry again. It's so sad, especially when there's children involved. And then she's like, oh, now I'm gonna have to call CPS. It's just such a mess. And then you hate it. Um, I have, uh, I'm trying to think of another one. I have had other situations that were like impactful for different reasons, like patients who really challenged me or patients who threatened me, things that were scary that like stick out, but those aren't like happy, sad. It's like, I, I'm overwhelmed and I'm out of my, I, I'm out of my comfort zone. Like I don't know how to deal with this. And it's been a really good growing experience for me. Um, yeah, I think those are just the ones. Okay. And then um, somebody said, if anything, what helpful lessons did you learn from your experiences or from hearing about the experiences of your colleagues? I think, I mean, first of all, for me, the the happy crying stuff is like healing's possible. We can get better. And man, the stories I've heard from you guys too, so impactful, so, so, and weirdly motivating because I'm like, hey, my job is important and people can get better and I've seen it and I've heard it. And, you know, God, that just sits with you. It's so, oh, feels so good. And then the bad ones, the ones that cr like crying because it's sad or like hearing about trauma from someone's childhood experience like some of the things I've heard are just horrific and you can really get caught up like we've I've talked about this with my friends and colleagues before about even like with my friend Alexa who you guys know really well I've um you can get caught up in like the wow there's so much evil in the world but you have to stick you know I choose to believe that there's also a lot of good there's more good in the world than there's evil in the world and so as long as I continue to choose to believe that and yeah, I don't know. That's how I can keep doing my job, I guess. Because I know some some people I went to school with tried to work in the field and could not because it was just too overwhelming. The pain that they had to to hear about all the time was just too much of a burden, right? It's, not everybody's cut out for it. But I think the lessons are that we we are resilient. We can overcome. And there's way, way, way more good people than bad people. And I could talk about that stuff forever, but let's move on to question number eight, okay? question says, hi, Katie, my childhood was quite unstable and I feel like I'm only starting to suffer the consequences. There were extended periods where I didn't have access to essentially to essentials, including food, gas, electric, or a caregiver. Drugs made them present, but unavailable at times, or they just left and never came back to attack. Um, oh, uh, or a caregiver to attach to. Gotcha. So now attachment is something that I want so desperately, but terrifies me all the time or all the same. It's gonna, it's gotten so severe that I can't walk past churches, for example, because to me, church is a place where people get married and marriage leads to attachment, which terrifies me because if only, it's only ever led to me getting hurt. I was recently dating someone who I liked and could see the, a future with, but ended it because we were getting too close and it felt incredibly dangerous. Yeah, it can feel really, we can feel really vulnerable. I wanna reach out for help but it's gotten to the point where I consciously avoid making eye contact with people to completely avoid any risk of attachment. So how am I meant to tell someone my deepest, darkest secrets? Interesting. Any advice on how to overcome what appears to be a complete aversion to attachment in any form? Thanks, Katie. 
Yes, uh, this is very common. And what you're experiencing, not to say like, oh, it's so common. This happens to a lot of people. This happens to a, a lot of children whose parents were completely unavailable for whatever reason, right? We can fear, not even just unavailable, par parents who are abusive. So it could be, you know, uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse, or emotional abuse, which it sounds like what you what you uh, lived with was neglect. And that neglect has left this big hole in you and for someone to care and love you and, and to have that, that connection and that support from a, from a caregiver, right? And we have that hole in ourselves. Um, and instead of, because when we have that, that hole and we feel like we just, we really, really want someone so badly, we can respond in one of two ways. We can overly attach to everybody which I worked with a child. This was one of my first like counseling jobs, you guys. Before I was in grad school, I it was between undergrad and grad. <clears throat> I worked at this family counseling center. There was this little girl that I would go see at the school and she was probably seven. She was just little, six maybe. And she wanted to attach to everybody. She would like hug on her teacher's legs. Like every time I'd come to her, she'd run and hug me and I would have to explain to her. I would say, you you realize that you don't know me that well. Like for the first few weeks, you know, do we hug strangers? No, Miss Morton, we don't. Okay, what? Well, why not? It's not safe. I'd have her repeat all this stuff. And I was like, but you know that I care about you, right? I do. And you show up. Yes, every Tuesdays at noon. Yes. And it was part of, I know that can sound kind of sad, but it was part of that like reframing attachment for her. And God, that again, that like, oh, that was a heartbreaker too. But, um, but she was getting the support, the school, luckily the, you know, it's where I grew up and they have really great uh, psychological resources for children there. But anyway, um, she wanted so badly to have somebody around because her mom was kind of like the person who was talking about this, the drugs. Her mom was a drug addict and would be gone and unavailable and stuff like that. And so then she'd been in the, the, the child, you know, the CPS system, kind of in the foster care system. So there's that. Then the other way, so the other way that we can respond to this is not wanting anybody. And you can see this, uh, there is still in children as particularly, but adults as well, it, but children who will be kind of loners and they prefer it that way. And they'll even be like aggressive or angry toward people who try to get close to them because it doesn't feel safe. And they don't want anybody to care about them or like them because that means they could get hurt, right? Where they puffer fish, <laughs> they stick their spines out and uh, protect themselves. And if you guys haven't seen, I have some really cool merch of a puffer fish where it's like you looking in the mirror and it's a puffer fish in the mirror. It's so cute. It's my favorite. I have a sweatshirt of it and my friend Yelena drew it for us and it's beautiful. And I encourage you to pick one up if you like it. So anyway, that those are the two responses. So in the, the person who has this question is responding the second way where it's like, I don't want anybody to get too close because I feel too vulnerable and I'm scared and I want to run away because I could, I could get hurt, right? It's like we're completely... Uh, attachment averse because of the potential pain that could come with that attachment. Because essentially that's all we've ever known. And even the sabotage from the previous relationship, you ended it because it got too close. So it's like, we're almost proving to ourselves it's still not safe, even though we had really no reason to end it other than the fact that we finally felt maybe close to someone, right? So my advice is 
to seek out an attachment-based therapist, someone who specializes in this. Now, the thing that's going to be important, and I've even done some work in this, I'm not an attachment specialist, but because I do a lot of dialectical behavior therapy or DBT, I already have very strict and clearly communicated boundaries with my patients because that's what helps those of us who have borderline personality disorder or easily dysregulated, even my highly sensitive people, it helps keep us contained, right? Um, Those healthy boundaries and very well-communicated boundaries. Um, And so an attachment-based therapist will do the same. And I think that you will, at first, like everybody, therapy's uncomfortable and awkward, and you will feel that at first. But but quickly after they, because when it comes and not, again, I'm not an attachment-based therapist, so there might be some things, if you're, you are, let us know in those comments, like if I'm missing something, but the way that it usually works is from the first session, I communicate around when they can contact me outside of session, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, that I do not reply to emails, that if they, the only reason they can ever text me is to change, reschedule. If there's an emergency, I talk about what happens in an emergency and we set up a plan. Like there's things that I structurally put in place right away so that my patients aren't guessing. And then there's, you'll be surprised. There's something about, and I don't know if anybody else has felt this way, but there's something about having rules and boundaries and containing that anxiety that comes from the fear of abandonment and struggles with attachment, right? And so having that kind of container can help us feel really, really good. And we may try to push it every so often when we feel triggered, but because we already kind of know those things are in place, like for instance, I've had patients all the time over the course of my years working, especially because I see a lot of borderline personality disorder patients who will try to call me back to back to back, not leave any voicemails, which the rule is if you call, you have to leave a voicemail. And if it's an emergency, you have to tell me it's an emergency and explain what it is. And I will get back to you, you know, within 24 hours or you have to call 911. You know, there's all these rules. So they will call a bunch and not leave any voicemails and they'll text a bunch, not about an emergency, not changing uh, scheduling for their appointment. And I will not respond. And then when we get back into session, I'll say, it sounds like someone had a really rough week. Let's talk about this. You know, why did you call me this many times? What was going on? Explain to me, you know, and give them time to debrief that impulsive need to reach out what was happening. And then we get to process and we get to put a plan in place for ways that they can self-soothe because they didn't have a way to self-soothe, right? It's all indicative of, you know, that that need for attachment, but the struggle with it and, and not feeling like we can regulate. And so having a therapist, I know I'm going off on a tangent, so I'm going to bring it back. So having a therapist who does dialectical behavior therapy or calls themselves an attachment-based therapist will be super, super helpful. I'd also even throw in that most trauma specialists, like my friend Alexa is well-versed in boundaries and attachment. Trauma specialists can be great at this too, I do find in my overall experience, not with Alexa specifically, she's like a special gem, but some other trauma specialists can be a little extra soft only because they deal with such deep pain all the time. Um, when it comes to DBT and when it comes to attachment, we, we're soft, but we're rigid in some ways too, right? Because we have to hold that line for you so that we keep this container where you feel safe. Um, that That's really my advice because through that, through that support and that process and the tools, I really think DBT will will offer you a lot of wonderful resources and things. You will be able to slowly open up 
and feel safe enough so that you can go out into the world, and engage with other people. Again, the great thing about therapy is you get to practice relationships in that session with your therapist. Like what's the relationship with your therapist? Like, how do you communicate? What's, you know, when do you shut down? I, I've also with my borderline patients, they'll have, they'll no show and then they'll show up a lot. You know, it's like they'll want to increase their sessions and then they won't show up. So, uh, and then processing that, right? You have that safe space to kind of act out what you want to do in life and then talk about it in a non-judgmental, non-judgmental way in a safe space. Does that help? I hope it helps, but keep me posted. Okay. Moving on to question number nine it says, hi, Katie. I have been seeing my therapist for a couple of years and I'm making progress. Yay. But even though I feel better, I still have a very long list of important slash difficult things that I want to talk about and work through in every session, don't we all? And every time we only get to a third of it, is this normal? Yes. It's so frustrating to feel that there's never enough time. Any suggestions on what to do? Yes, I have a lot of suggestions. Okay, this is very common. And I think all of us feel this way. Um, especially, I don't know if anybody else feels this way, but sometimes like right now, I haven't seen my therapist in like quite a while. Um, because of moving and now I got to find somebody here and blah, blah, blah. Um, so I'll feel like I have so much to talk about and then I'll get there and I'm like, boop. And so I usually make notes and make a list. And so that's really what I encourage all of us to do. Make notes about what you want to talk about, what you want to address, maybe what you want to improve. Let's make that list. Let's write it down. And then when you go into session, give it to your therapist and say, I just want to keep working through this list. I feel like we only get to about a third of the things that I want to and I feel like there's never enough time. And so I just don't want to lose progress. I don't want to forget things, right? So keep this running list. It's okay. I keep it on the notes in my phone. And I would encourage you to do the same because that you can update whenever. Because sometimes I'll just be out doing something I'm like, oh, fuck, I forgot about that. And I'll write it down. I wanted to mention that, you know, because sometimes you just go into session. I cry every time. So I'll be like, oh, get into it. And then I forget some of the important things. I'm too emotion brain. I can't, can't think clearly. So make that list, give it to your therapist, keep your own. And then second thing is when this was happening for me, and if it happens with my patients for a lot, that's why it's really important that you tell your therapist about this, by the way, is because maybe you need to go more than once a week if you can. Now I did that for a little bit right before Sean and I got married. And then shortly after just, it was so stressful. You guys, I was studying to take my licensing exam, planning a wedding, which if anybody's ever done that, you know what I'm talking about. And I was also working full-time and doing YouTube videos. It was a lot. I was like totally maxed out and like crying all the time. So I went to sessions twice a week and that could be another thing as well because then you have more time and then you actually end up getting through it all. And so that's why bringing it up with your therapist, hey, I feel like we don't really, you know, get through all this long list of things and I feel like I can never just get through enough with you. I feel like 50 minutes or an hour or whatever it is, isn't enough time can we do a double session or can I do twice a week or whatever you can afford or whatever's available to you? I would encourage you to ask your therapist about it and talk about it because most uh, insurances cover it at least a double session or at least 90 minutes, I believe is like the the least amount of coverage that I've seen on people's uh, insurance. So look into it and see, because there's also like, I even uh, have heard recently from a couple people in our community that through different ways of billing insurance, sometimes having a longer session actually means that you as the patient gets more money back and you get more therapy. Ta-da! Amazing. So anyway, um, bring it up with your therapist. Let them know. Yes, this is very normal. I think we all feel this way. Keep the notes in your phone. Have your therapist keep the list as well. Um, 
so that you can continue to work through it. And maybe, because for me, sometimes I'll go once a week, then I'll take a break. Sometimes I go twice a week. I went twice a week. I want to say for, it was like a year when my dad died, I think, and then maybe six months leading up to Sean and I's wedding and then the after. So it's okay to, to up and down and make it work for you. Sometimes we need more support. Sometimes we have more shit to talk about and sometimes we don't. And so, yeah, super, super normal. I've been there too. Um, I hope that that helps. Hope those suggestions are helpful. Okay. Final question. Question number 10 says, hi, Katie, what would you as a therapist think if your client told you that sometimes they turn into a little child, fearfully retreat into a corner and curl up there, fantasizing about the therapist being there to comfort them? That's very normal. It feels like I'm suddenly a child full of fear and doing some kind of extreme fantasizing to the point that it almost feels real. This seems super strange to me. And I might tell my therapist that I quote unquote switch question mark into a child but I feel super ashamed about the fantasizing part. Okay, um, this is very, very common. And the reason that this happens is because, like I've talked about before, we all have an inner child. And even if we haven't been traumatized, we all have an inner child. But especially when it's coming out of trauma, when things feel triggering or overwhelming or we feel scared, we can revert back and feel exactly like that child. And what this shows me, first of all, telling your therapist is key. But as a therapist who's been told something very similar many times, it shows me that your therapist's role is protector. And that's a key role in therapy, especially in trauma work. Uh, Alexis talked about this a lot, and I don't know how much in our videos together, but I know in videos that we have coming out um, probably in about a month, she talks about it more. But the role of protector is one role that when you do EMDR, they will have you create that role so that when we go back into those painful, hurtful, scary, maybe terrorizing memories, we have a protector there. And it can be your some for some people, it can be yourself, but a lot of times it can be like some protector role. Maybe it was, maybe your father was the protector, maybe your brother, maybe, you know, maybe your dog or something like that, or your therapist in this case. And so I would talk to your therapist about it because. Again, shame is so wrapped up in trauma and in our work, in our inner child work. And I'm here to tell you that what you're experiencing is nothing to be ashamed of. It's it's a, a reaction and a response that is very normal. And it's actually really telling about what you're going through. And it's really helpful in the therapeutic process because we can uh, track back from that and figure out like maybe what it is that triggered that or maybe um, how often this is happening me, you know, there's, there's so much to be curious about and to better to learn about based on the fact that this is happening. Does that make sense? I know it sounds weird, but sometimes when something, what we think is like embarrassing or strange happens, it's actually not that strange. And it gives you and your therapist more information to work with so that you can move forward because what's happening is, is part of the trauma response in most cases. And I have a feeling that there's some inner child work that's going to need to be done. And I have a video, I have videos about that. I would encourage you to start maybe engaging with that child, putting some language. What would that scared child say? You know, what what's happening? Um, how is your therapist there to comfort? What does your therapist do? Tell your therapist about that because that's all really helpful if you're able. Again, these are things you can write out, practice saying out loud before you go in to say them if you feel nervous. But I'm here to tell you that they probably heard it before. And it's kind of part of that initial healing stages. And I, I know it's uncomfortable, but again, very, very common. Nothing's wrong with you. 
Now, a comment on this question says, is it normal for people with childhood trauma for this to happen? Yes. Inside, you are still that little child. Exactly. It's not that the child is another person. No, it's you. I'm still trying to figure this out as I struggle with it too. And I, uh, I, as I struggle with it too, I've learned. The little kid in us is trying to get what we didn't have back then, and it will do it any way possible sometimes. I've been told that this is normal. It is. I've been told to not push it away because that's my go-to. Mm-hmm. It can be uncomfortable for us to see ourselves as that child, especially if we sustain trauma at that age or as a child. It can be very emotionally stirring, right? Uh, emotionally charged. And so we can want to like stuff it away and not listen to it, which is why this is what's happening. That child usually didn't feel comforted, validated, or heard. And so those are really important things to give to that child now, which I know it sounds weird, like I'm not that child anymore, but that child is still very much alive in you and in me, right? And we have to look at them and talk to them kindly, hear them out, offer them care and support in the way that they never got. And we can do that to ourselves now, and it will help our child back then, which I know sounds weird but that's just how it is. Um, this, this is an example. It says, example, when I hear fighting, I turn into a fearful person and say, I can't handle it, even if there's no real danger. Very common if we grew up in a tumultuous household. I grew up around fighting, so I've been told that my younger self is scared and that I, as an older person, need to let that part of me know that I'm safe and we are okay. Yeah. And how can you do that, right? Be curious about, again, who's your protector? Are you, as adult you, your protector? That can be helpful. Can we write a letter to that child? help explain to them why fights happen and and what's okay. You know, can we differentiate? That actually helps as well. What's different now than it was as a child? How can people fight? Like if we hear people fighting on the street and we're like, you know what? And you might even say this out loud to yourself. You know what? They're arguing that has nothing to do with me. I am safe. I'm going to get into my car and I'm going to drive away. This is okay. We're okay. You know, how do we talk ourselves down, calm ourselves, but validate? I don't like to hear shouting either. Shouting is not the way I like to communicate, but I'm not in that fight and we're okay, right? How can we have that kind of conversation? Um, It says, uh, okay, and I'm okay, that we can defend ourselves and are in control, unlike then as a scared, helpless child who didn't have the knowledge to know better. Exactly. So that, I hope that, I feel like I've kind of addressed all of that. It's very normal. Um, You can write letters comforting them. You can write uh, letters to your younger child in the way that you had hoped an adult would, you know, speak to you things that you can do that feel good now. But again, telling your therapist about this is, I know it's going to be uncomfortable because we're, we have some embarrassment attached to it or a shame, but it's very normal. R- write it out, practice saying it. Trust me when I tell you that they've heard it before. There's nothing wrong with you. Uh, therapists <clears throat> often play, <clears throat> excuse me. It's very often that therapists play the protector or the caregiver role for a lot of patients until we can get that inner child uh, healing started. Because often the therapist is the only person in their life, an adult person who has listened, been supportive and validating and shown up for them consistently, right? For it, for us, it can feel, it's like a warm blanket we've been waiting for forever. And now our therapist is showing us all the things that we really needed. Of course, we want them to show up for us when we feel like we want to retreat like a little child into a corner. That's just... It's adaptive. It makes sense. Okay. That's all we have for this week. Um, Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave it a review and please share it with a friend. Tell somebody else about it. Um, You never know who it could help. And if you're wondering where I got my questions, I get them over on my podcast channel. It's called Opinions That Don't Matter. I go onto the community tab on Sunday mornings. I post and ask for them. And this is usually recorded on Monday or Tuesday. 
Um, and so make sure you get them in as soon as possible. Again, I usually pick eight of the most thumbs up questions. So if there's a question that's very similar to one you want to ask, just give it a thumbs up or leave a comment below adding in something a little different for your question. And then the last two questions I just randomly pick so that those of us who maybe can't, didn't get our question in quick enough or only have a couple of thumbs up so you can get your questions answered as well. Have a wonderful week. I hope this was helpful. Make sure to make some time, take care of yourself, and I will see you next time. Bye.